The comments and views expressed on The More Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The More Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined by my guest, Stephen Bassett. Now, Stephen is a leading advocate for ending the 60-year government-imposed truth embargo regarding an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He is a political activist, lobbyist, and conference producer. He is the founder of the Paradigm Research Group, the executive director of the Extraterrestrial Phenomenal Political Action Committee, and the executive producer of the X Conference. Since 1996, Bassett has assisted organizations and initiatives, making the case for an end to the government's truth embargo and open congressional hearings to take the testimony of former military and agency employees, witness to the extraterrestrial-related evidence and events. He has appeared on hundreds of radio and television talk shows and in numerous documentaries, delivering the message to millions of people of the likelihood and implications of disclosure and the formal acknowledgement of the ET presence by the governments of the world. Stephen Bassett, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be with you, Kevin. Now, just for our audience, just uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in the subject of UFOs. Well, my subject is less UFOs than it is exopolitics. Paradigm Research Group was set up as an advocacy organization in 1996 to engage this issue. I'd come to the conclusion that um, at that point it had been um, approximately uh, 40 years since uh, Roswell, or rather 50 years since Roswell, and a huge amount of effort had been put into trying to understand the phenomena by citizen scientists and what have you, but just wasn't going anywhere. And the reason was quite simple. The government had a policy of embargo. Uh, the government had made the decision that for national security reasons, the, this phenomenon could not be acknowledged. The ET presence could not be acknowledged. And the truth, certainly the, the, the key truths of this matter, would have to be withheld. So that it, the solution was political, not, not science. Um, and therefore, we needed to go down that road, which had been done to some degree, but not nearly to the degree necessary. So I created uh, a set of paradigm research group, and the first thing I did was register as a lobbyist with the United States Congress. This was a, a milestone of sorts. No one had ever done this before. Interestingly enough, I don't think anyone has since registered on this subject matter, but I could be wrong about that, but it hasn't come to my attention. And then from that point forward, paradigm research group has, has been involved as, as, as much as possible with the international movement that's been developing and helping to shape that movement uh, and attempting to end the what I call the truth embargo. Um, the end of that embargo would be disclosure, which is the goal of this advocacy movement. Disclosure is, is uh, an event. It's not a process. It has a capital D, not a small d, and uh, uh, it is the formal acknowledgement by world government, starting probably with a single government. And formal means that the head of state either directly or indirectly, uh, conveys to the, to the citizens of that country that, that the ETs are, in fact, real, that there is presence, that they've known about it, and they're telling us now. So that's, that's the essence of what I do. Uh, I got into it because it's what I wanted to do. Uh, things I'd been doing previous to 95 just were not, not in, no, no interest to me and uh, didn't really uh, have any uh, you know, meaning, in a sense. I, I wanted to try to make a difference, wanted to... To, to be an activist, I think I'd always wanted to be an activist, just hadn't done it. So decision to, to go into this in 95, and, and I've been in it ever since. But the, there obviously must have been a sort of uh, an influence when you were younger. I mean, you must have had a, a sort of, yeah, an interest in the ufology field um, from a much earlier age, surely. Not in a field, but in a subject matter. I, it, it, I, I grew up like a lot of kids uh, in the... Uh, 50s and 60s. It was a big era of science fiction. I, I, I preferred science fiction to Shakespeare. What can I say? Um, ended up studying math and science in school. Got a degree in physics, but I didn't go further. Um, but 
the UFO thing was also happening, and I was noting it, but I did not get involved with it. And I sort of watched it develop. It sort of rode with me through life, like the sidecar on a motorcycle. Uh, and at the point in my life when I realized I, I wanted to do something beyond just hanging out, as it were, wanted to do something that I felt would have some value, uh, I guess I realized I needed to get off the motorcycle and get in that sidecar. It's really that simple. But, you know, a science, science fiction, this kind of stuff, it certainly atoned me to the subject matter, made it easier for me to sort of grasp it uh, than, than some others. Uh, but it wasn't like a compelling thing. Uh, the fact is that 90, by the 95, end of 95, when I took a hard look, the issue had been maturing for nearly 50 years. So uh, when I took a hard look at that point, what I saw was a very uh, uh, well-developed uh, evidentiary base, all kinds of things happening around the world. Uh, some, and the evidence, it seemed to me that something was going to happen very soon, that we were in, in the process of going through some sort of major historical moment. Um, so it was it was pretty pretty compelling when I decided to get involved. Uh, so I jumped in in '95. I have colleagues that have been involved in this field for 40 years, uh, and I have I have sympathy for them because that's an awful long time to be working on something without re- resolution, without closure. Uh, but uh, uh, I got lucky. I got in late, and um, so it's been a, been 15 years. It's been longer than I thought it would be. I thought disclosure would have happened before now. But I understand the, the reasons and uh, also understand that it's about to happen. We're very close to finally getting this done. Okay, well, we'll go into uh, the disclosure and why you think it's sort of inevitable very shortly. Um, but one thing, uh, you, uh, this is just to clear up about your, your lobbyist activities. So you advocate for the UFO ET question, is that right? And, and also for our audience, uh, what is a lobbyist? Well, in the United States, in order to do certain things. In order to conduct yourself uh, on Capitol Hill or with the House and the Senate or make an attempt to, you know, to sort of influence the White House in whatever way you think you can, uh, you need to register uh, with the House and the Senate as a matter of law so that people know who is trying to influence policymakers. I, I don't know what the rules are in the UK, but I'm sure they have something similar. Uh, and that's it. Um, it's not difficult to do. And um, uh, I registered on behalf of a couple of organizations that were involved in UFO research, thus the name Paradigm Research Group, which is a little confusing for some people. Uh, but it's not a research organization, really. It's an advocacy group. And then uh, after that, I, I, I created the Political Action Committee, XPAC. Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee, which is something, you know, which is another way of advocating, right? Uh, standard procedure here, uh, where you can uh, uh, provide money to candidates, you can do other things. That also has to be registered, uh, and so forth. And so essentially what I was doing was simply trying to normalize this issue, um, meaning that it, it should have certain... Um, uh, functions. There, there should be certain things happening with respect to it, uh, and this was necessary so that people would view it with um, with without the um, the the taint uh, and 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 the image that had been created by the government through the truth embargo. The truth embargo's fundamentally role role was to ghettoize the issue. Ufology, UFOs, everybody in it, everybody that talks about it. Uh, to put them in a ghetto with walls of ridicule so that they could isolate it. So the press wouldn't cover it, the Congress wouldn't address it, the foundations wouldn't fund it, and people would even shun it in a way. This this was the containment process. Um, and so this normalization process was a way of, of saying, we don't, we're not going to be in your ghetto anymore. We're not going to play by your rules anymore. Uh, an issue of this magnitude should have a lobbyist. It should have a political action committee. It should have a lot of things, and so we're going to do those things, uh, regardless of what you think about that, and and present a, a more normal image uh, to to the American people. But why is the UFO in topic uh, so important to you, Stephen? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> if you want to do something meaningful with your life, you have to make a choice. 
there's countless things you can do. I mean, you can join Greenpeace and go cruising around the Antarctic. Uh, you can join the Sea Shepherd and try to stop whaling. I mean, you can, you can join the Peace Corps. I mean, there are, there are an infinite number of issues. Um, exactly why this issue was compelling to me, I can only speculate. Um, ever since I was a kid, though, I, I love the idea of science fiction. I I love the movies. I love the uh, the concept of a galactic reality going into space, all that stuff. Um, I guess perhaps I like it a lot more than what I find terrestrially <laughs> down here. The <laughs> yeah. Earth is a is a complicated, murky place, and the and, and and the cosmos seems so clean, so beautiful, so pristine. Of course, I'm sure it's not. Uh, who knows? Um, but that's the issue I picked. And um, once I got into it, it proved to be everything you could want. I mean, it's it's got it all. Uh, a compelling story, amazing people, huge historical implications, incredible history. Um, you can't, you know, other than the fact that the government has done everything it can to prevent it from, from maturing and, and resolving, uh, it's ideal. I mean, I mean, maybe this way, almost no issue, well, actually, there are parallels. I mean, every every major political activist movement has had resistance from the state. Uh, you really can't find one that hasn't. Uh, they're always up against state policy, one way or the other. Whether it whether it's the Indian independence movement, whether it's the women's suffrage movement, whether it's the uh, anti-apartheid movement, the civil rights movement in the United States, you're always up against state power, um, and you have to ultimately overcome policy one way or the other, in order to achieve advancement of, I guess you could say, the social arena, the commons. Uh, and the history of this goes back thousands of years. So in that sense, it's, it's no different. But what the government did in this case, how the U.S. opposed the, the, this process, is a little unique in a sense. It's special. Uh, the, the history of it is, is probably unprecedented in some ways. And so it posed unique uh, problems for the activist to overcome. Um, it, there's, it's almost like there isn't a, a, a rule book for this one. You have to sort of almost invent your own rules. Um, and that's that's that and that's and that's a direct result of the topic itself. In other words, the issue at hand is the presence of extraterrestrials. The fact that they've been around for probably a very very long time doesn't alter the fact that their emergence in '47 in substantial quantities and 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 its implications for the human race, which by then was of course fully globalized, with almost uh, I think it was three million people, three billion people on the planet. Uh, just nothing like it had happened before, and so the governments themselves were faced with something that they couldn't deal with, I mean, or, or certainly had no rule book for. And so everybody was breaking new ground. At the same time, we, we were in the middle of the developing Cold War, which was a, a war unlike anything really the world had ever seen, and of course was the, uh, the implications of which were beyond anything we'd ever had before. I mean, humans thrive on war, love war. That's, that's one of our chief pastimes, and we've perfected it to an art, and we finally perfected it so well that it could be completely self-annihilating, which I guess we should have patted ourselves on the back and said, you know, good on. Uh, but uh, this idea of a completely self-annihilating kind of war where most of life would be destroyed and the planet ultimately unlivable was, again, outside the rule book. And so you have governments and people dealing with these unprecedented things, not to mention everything else that was going on in the world as we went in this exponentially increasing technological you know, upswing uh, with everything happening and everything being informed on us and a rain of information. I mean, again, it's, it's, there's a reason why a vast number of people in the industrial world literally cannot live without antacids or uh, some mood-altering drugs because the human psyche has been assaulted in ways that... Uh, our genetic ancestors could not have imagined. So what can I say? I mean, we're just doing the best we can uh, in uncharted territory. But ultimately, we are all heading in the same direction, and that is 
we will be you know told about ET presence. We will engage them probably in some formal way. We will probably end up part of some sort of galactic political reality. Yeah, which shouldn't be surprising to anyone. I mean, it's totally logical. Okay, now we've spoke about there. You've mentioned the, the word about the embargo going on uh, between us and uh, the U.S. government, but is this a worldwide government uh, embargo? It's it's worldwide in the sense that the embargo was shaped between 1947 and 53, and almost certainly the United States was in contact with its allies, its chief allies, uh, in World War II as to how to proceed. Uh, the, you know, the, the phenomena was not limited to the United States. The Foo Fighters in World War II were happening around the, around the world, so that, that, that sort of cued things up a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of smart people in, in, in most of the governments that are, we're, we're dealing with here or talking about figured out that the Foo Fighters are almost certainly extraterrestrial. No other explanation for it. And there may have been crashes prior to. I mean, there's a number of there's indication, there's evidence for a number, a couple of crashes prior to the war, uh, prior to 1940. So uh, let, let's assume that some people were queued up. Um, but nevertheless, in 47, when the phenomena just explodes on the scene, all of the governments had the same problem. What are we going to do about this? And at the time, the United States, of course, was the preeminent uh, leader of the West. Uh, without doubt, and uh, and and as the Cold War was developing, I don't think anybody would question that the United States was the the only country capable of standing against the Soviet threat that people perceived. And so, what the United States wanted, it got, and what it wanted was to contain this issue. And so, I have no doubt that Canada, Australia, Britain, uh, France. Any of the nations that would have been uh, uh, likely to be engaged with this were uh, were basically told, "Look, we have to keep this uh, contained until such time as it's uh, safe to bring this out. We've got too many unknowns, too many variables here. We don't know enough about the phenomena. We don't know about the ETs. We've got a crash vehicle from at least one from Roswell, but uh, we don't know what the tech is going to give us." Uh, and so forth. So we just can't go forward with this. Plus, the Soviet threat is uncertain as well. Um, this could destabilize an already difficult situation. So let's keep it under wraps and, until later. And uh, I think that these nations went along with it. So in a sense, it was worldwide. Now, there were probably some nations in the world in '47 that were clueless and kept clueless. Over time, though, the, obviously, the, the awareness of this phenomenon was completely worldwide, and I'm sure many other governments figured out, hmm, this is probably real, but like, what? But decided we're, it's not our place to, to engage it. Um, we'll let the big guys deal with it, certainly during uh, the Cold War. Remember, the Cold War is the predominant event of the 20th century, 19, basically 1946 to 1991. And during that period, two, two major nations built up, along with a couple other countries, uh, nearly 80,000 nuclear warheads capable of utterly destroying the planet, turning it into a heaping, steaming pile of radioactive ash. Um, and so we had a weird, strange situation that had never been faced before by the human race. And so the, it, it became clear that you, whatever you do, you don't uh, trigger a nuclear war. And the ET issue, I'm sure, was viewed as a risky proposition. And so, what can I say? Um, it was not going to come out until after the Cold War ended. And not surprisingly, as, after the Cold War does end, in due course, suddenly you start to see actions by various nations, which seems to indicate that they'd like to move forward on this. The U.S., on the other hand, has remained locked down. Um, and so that's the tension that's building now. Uh, that's the best way to describe it. I mean, the history of this, the total history of this, is going to be fascinating uh, if it ever comes out. Uh, most of the communications that went on, I'm sure, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was was between the intelligence entities, the underground uh, railroad, as it were. Uh, it wasn't one uh, leader talking to another. It was one intel manager talking to another intel manager in another country. And so you had this underground, you know, back 
channel communication between the intelligence networks of these first world nations where probably this this matter was sorted out or at least somewhat organized it was not happening anywhere near the surface uh and again it, since it was viewed by all of these nations as the most um classified uh matter in the world beyond anything else it shouldn't surprise anyone that they worked very hard to make sure that these communications were kept secret and that uh whatever they intended to do about it was being was being managed completely sub rosa this idea that the government can't keep secrets is just another piece of nonsense propaganda but do do you think the embargo may have been there as well because they didn't want their enemies to you know have sight of such technology i mean if the et uh subject was laid clear and and what they knew was uh, sort of you know laid to the open um surely you know what what we have uh, our enemies have as well perhaps or? it's possible but uh, again the, the whole history of of this is 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 so so secreted uh, it's going to and, and and if the governments don't destroy all the records whatever records they have maybe one day we'll have a real history of how these nations dealt with this emerging reality starting in 47 forward or not so we we have to we can only speculate um there there's plenty of evidence that there were crashes how many we don't know um, ryan wood wrote a book called magic eyes only where he provide some evidence for about 70 some crashes but some of the evidence is very thin but i think there was certainly more than one so it's not clear how many wrecks there were how many craft came into how many countries hands uh i doubt seriously that the us was the only nation to end up with a craft there's a lot of evidence that germans may have gotten their hands on one so uh, it would be i think reasonable to assume that there were multiple crashes and that more than one country had a vehicle in their hands now to what extent did they know that to what extent did each country know what the other had to what extent did a particular country was able to re, uh, re- reverse engineer some of this tech we don't know was there a a a a uh, a et technology race or et weapons technology race going on simultaneously with the uh, the the nuclear arms race it's possible it would certainly have made the whole cold war that much more dicey uh we don't know uh, uh but uh, these are not you know unreasonable inferences i hope one day we do know it's important we know everything about this period it's the most important period in history you know the the the, the human race as far as we know and uh since the flood so let's hope we do get the details on this we're doing the best we can but the governments are deliberately withholding vast amounts of information about the whole damn thing and until they really come clean we will have to poke around in the dark but i st- i still can't get it around my head why why there's purposeful um you know uh, uh, denial on the government's part i mean i know you've touched on quite a few subjects there and quite a, quite a few threads but i mean why why would they withhold technology from us that could that could help us i mean is it down to money well they've been doing that forever i mean the, the one of the important developments of the 20th century was the rise of what i call the secret empire the creation of truly vast intelligence complex with vast classification the world never seen anything like it before and we've gone way down that road uh and one of the most important decisions that the human race has to face is whether they want to go any further down that road or whether they want to start backing up uh and we'll see what happens i think that disclosure will will very likely trigger a an examination of this uh of this approach and the secret empire uh and they and you know there's more than one the us has the largest but every one of the industrial nations got their own little secret empire um and we'll see what happens post disclosure but right now um the situation is this <laughs> there is a huge amount of, of of research going on in the hidden world uh that we don't know anything about there's a huge amount of technology that they have down there that we don't know anything about uh they will you know they will confiscate patents they will confiscate researchers take them under under classification not to be seen again uh lord knows what they have um and it's all all justified and based on national security every single thing that they do every technology they withhold every action they take 
is all justified by national security. This is kind of a result of the Cold War. Once you have a situation where nations can literally destroy each other and everything else if they, if they were to act, you now have a kind of national security justification um, par excellence, the ultimate justification. Meaning, well, we have to do this and we have to do that. I mean, do you want to see the United States completely destroyed? Do you want to see the end of the world? So once that developed, the Cold War really created a rationale for complete and total, um, a, a complete basis for, for national security justification, which was put in flesh in the 1947 National Security Act. We've done some other things since then. And everybody sort of watched this unfold. Uh, year by year by year, and any any concerns they may have had about it, whether in the UK or the United States or anywhere else for that matter, um, had to be put aside. I mean, it, you know, nuclear war can't have it, so they got to do what they got to do. Now, in the Soviet Union and China, it's a little it was a little different situation. And in, in, in that case, the governments were going to definitely do whatever they wanted to do because these were ideological control states with their own secret empires. So the only difference between the two, the three situations, is that most people in China and the Soviet Union sort of understood there wasn't anything they could do about it. The government's going to do exactly what they intended to do, and then if you wanted to challenge that, you could, but you were going to go to an early grave. The difference is in the West, we still had a certain set of values that we were trying to hold on to, and that the secret empire had to be built up within the arena of these values, and there was huge conflict, and it still is. So we have this huge dynamic tension and cognitive dissonance that exists within our culture. Another reason why we're all on antacids here. Um, and what can I say? That's a good thing in a way. Um, but if it goes too far, yeah. then I don't see how democratic republics, representative governments can, can last. And so they'll, they'll uh, ironically fall apart. And the whole basis for the Cold War to, quote, thwart totalitarian expansion in controlled states will have been kind of wasted because we'll end up exactly where we were afraid we were going to have to go. So in your opinion then, what, why do you think that the ETs haven't really come forward and said, you know, hi guys, here we are, or have they? One of the top five exopolitical questions that will always be asked anytime I speak, that's one of them. Uh, why, have, what is, why have not the extraterrestrials forced the issue? Uh, obviously, only they know. Uh, so, if you ever get one on your show, make sure you ask them. <laughs> but uh, uh, the best answer I can give is that the extraterrestrials are doing exactly what they want to do, and that seems to be they one are allowing themselves to be seen. They're allowing information to come out. They're allowing uh, contactees and abductees to remember increasingly what's happened to them. Um, they're allowing themselves to be photographed, picked up on radar, and so forth. So they're certainly allowing their presence to be known, which is putting enormous pressure on government policies around the world. That seems obvious. I, I can't imagine anybody would argue that. Uh, on the other hand, they are not taking any action which would trigger worldwide disclosure. Um, the classic example, park a mile-wide ship over Washington. I guess that, and then you have Bill Pullman walking out on the portico of the White, of the White House going, well, I guess the answer to the question, are we alone, has been answered. Uh, uh, the, uh, the question has been answered. Um, they haven't done that. And there's a lot of other ways that they could probably trip disclosure. They haven't done it. Why? The, the best answer that I have uh, is that they are... They are driving the process below, leading to self-disclosure, where we don't, we're not forced to buy them or some event, but rather we actually do something mature, something appropriate, reasonable, logical, which is increasingly rare in government these days, and tell the public the truth, assuage their concerns, and begin uh, uh, an information flow to educate people of the world as to the way things are. Uh, if we were to do that, then one could, I think, reasonably expect that in a year or two, the knowledge base, uh, the public knowledge base on this issue would be profoundly increased. And and given the nature of humans uh, as it is, people would start to take it completely for granted. Uh, we've seen this before, 
right? And in the modern world, it happens very quickly. What took maybe 100 years to adapt to, you know, 500 years ago, now takes you know, five months. And so after about two years, the idea of extraterrestrials hanging around the planet Earth will become uh, almost old news. Then one, one, I think, unreasonably, I think, state that a fully open contact event or engagement, not some secret meeting in the, underneath some mountain somewhere, but formal open engagement of ETs where they might even be seen on camera, and projected around the world would be far less destabilizing, far less uh, uncomfortable for the for us as a collective society, as a species, than had they just forced the issue. This is the best example I have. Now, if I'm right, then we're we're going through a process of acclimatization, process of um, of uh, you know disclosure with a small d, followed by self-disclosure, big event, a couple of years of of uh, of learning and then open contact, um, which is, to me, hugely exciting prospect. That's what I see happening, But you, uh, to do be you, perfectly honest with you. There's other things going on, by the way. They're doing a lot of other things, and I hope we learn about that soon. But the over-fundamental thing that's happening is that the planet Earth, all 6.8 billion of us, are, are being brought up to speed. We're on a learning curve here, and that learning curve is approaching its uh, asymptotic point. But do you think there's many different races out there with different agendas? Of course. We have six billion, six point eight billion people on the planet. We got two hundred and some countries. How many languages? How many religions? Um, gee, the galaxy has got who knows how many millions of uh, civilizations. The, the most recent census by the Kepler scientists who are doing a survey of the sky for planets. Yeah, they're discovering planets all the time now. I think most of your listeners probably know that. It wasn't that long ago when you had scientists going, well, we may never find another planet like ours. Lord. Uh, I think the census was 50 billion planets uh, of one type or another and about 500 million in the Goldilocks zone, the just right zone. Soon that number will increase many times, undoubtedly. Uh, so you have a galaxy filled with life, filled with sentient life. How many civilizations? Pick a number, 1,000, 20,000, 80,000. Okay, so what does that mean? If they're all like us and they're all at war with each other and there's like countless thousands of wars going on, the slaughter is unbelievable. No. We're very primitive. We're just getting our, our feet wet. Uh, they're not like us, uh, highly unlikely. So you have advanced civilizations and you've got political alliances. How many don't know? Uh, obviously, we're dealing with some of that. Uh, it, it's not surprising that the contactees, the re of which we have now several hundred thousand accounts that have been submitted to researchers, several hundred thousand written accounts, um, indicate multiple species, multiple groups, sometimes seen together, sometimes not. Um, one would one would reasonably assume that the reason that they're different is that they come from different planets. Right? I mean, I don't know why that's hard to... You know, some people have a trouble with that. I mean, what? I mean, if you've got two life forms that uh, become sentient in a biosphere, and, and, and those biospheres are separated by 100,000 light years, one would expect that they would be different. And so you have different species, different planets, but somehow they are definitely engaging each other. That means there's some kind of political alliance or alliances out there. There are about four or five fundamental groups that we're dealing with. There have been intimations of others. Um... And uh, so the idea that we're dealing with not just a group, but a, an alliance of groups, I think is the proper inference from the evidence. Right. Now, that's an extremely important thing. If we're dealing with an alliance, if they're able to ally with each other, then obviously they have a, their agendas are much more likely to be conducive to our future prospects. Uh, you know, in the old days, I think, what was it? I think it was Genghis Khan, whose fundamental philosophy was you conquer a group and you kill everybody. I mean, you, you don't leave anything behind because, you know, they may come back and get you. Uh, that's not the way they operate. Uh, Alexander's modus operandi was he just wanted to conquer new worlds uh, just to say he did. I don't think they operate that way. Um, so, 
this, the fact that they're able to create an alliance, the fact that they have complex agendas, uh, is very conducive, I think, to our future. I think we could expect to be in alliance with them down the line. Now, we'll be a junior partner, I would assume. But we're not, you know, this whole idea, and I hear this all the time from people, oh, it's going to be awful because we're just monkeys, we're just chimpanzees compared to them. That's nonsense. Um, if you look at the, the scope of human scientific research right now, we are within 100 years of just about everything you can imagine. Warp drive, fully human cloning, massive genetic capabilities, uh, unbelievable supercomputers, maybe artificial intelligence, and on and on and on and on. We're not chimpanzees. We're very, very smart. Now, now, now meaning that the, the, the top end of our intellectual um, spectrum is very powerful, and our ability to convert that information into extraordinary technology is very powerful. We have some people on this planet dumber than suitcases of rocks. That's not the point. The point is what is the potential of the collective species? And on that basis, we are not that far behind them. Uh, so we're non-trivial, but we are dangerous because we don't yet have the sophistication of uh, intellectual, spiritual, if you want to call it, sophistication to know what the hell to do with ourselves or the technology we have. And so we're very dangerous right now. Well, that's, that's, that's solvable. Right. I mean, would you want uh, extremist religion to be, you know, in your backyard and out of space? We're not going to be in their backyard. I mean, I... I have very little doubt that we're never going to take our nuclear weapons into space or that we'll go pouring out into space like cockroaches <clears throat> fleeing a kitchen that's just been sprayed. Um, again, there's already a, you know, a, a civilizations out there, right? So you know, there, there are people on this planet right now <clears throat> that feel that the fundamental raison d'etre for the human race is to populate itself to unlimited uh, um, numbers, you know, 50 billion, make the earth uninhabitable, but then spread out into space until one day human beings fill the whole galaxy. This is just silly, simple-minded, xenophobic uh, thinking that, I, you know, we understand, right, because for the vast majority of our history, there was very little general understanding that there was anything out there, and so we developed a very high opinion of ourselves. Well, okay, we're not the smartest people in the block. We don't have the best batting average. We don't have the best technology. Um, but we're, we're coming along. Uh, but we're going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to engage uh, a, an already advanced, probably political realities. And so a great deal of human delusions of grandeur will be falling away, I think, very soon. And th that's what one has to do. Kevin... I, I, I would suggest to your listeners, if they want to try to sort of think about this in a way that I think could help take them somewhere, they have to do something that I think anybody in the exopolitical realm has to do. Uh, you have to remove yourself from the planet, from your yourself, from all of your biases in a way, all of your affiliations. I'm a Brit. I'm a horticulturalist, I'm a cricket player, whatever. Just separate from, I'm, you know, I'm a Lutheran. Separate all that. Step away from all that. Step away from the planet. Take yourself up about 1,000 miles. Put yourself in orbit and look down on the planet in this very, very objective point of view and assess it. But go even further. Try to imagine you're an extraterrestrial doing that and look at it that way. And, and the more time you spend in that mode, that zone, things will start to clarify. Because understand, when they deal with us, that is how they are looking at us. They are looking down and, 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 and uh, perceiving the entire ball game at once. Uh, and they are looking down from their perspective as sentient beings from another civilization completely separate from ours. And when you get in that mode, it's interesting how things kind of come together. <clears throat> because when you deal in the collective, 
and you, you shed all of those internecine differences and problems between this country and that country, that political party and that party, that religion, that religion. You get away from all that, which in the grand scheme are really not even important. You start to see the more important stuff. You start to understand a little bit about why they would be here at all and how we might be important to them, how they might be important to us. Uh, you start to think like a Galaxian. And I'm not being trivial here. I, I don't belong to any Galactic Federation or anything. Uh, but you start to think like a Galaxian. A, a, a star-faring being of fairly advanced technology, substantial mental abilities, including telepathy, engaging a species like us at this particular point. That's what you have to do if you want to be a, a factor in the, the evolution of exopolitical history. Uh, it's fun. I think, I think people would enjoy it. And a lot of people are doing it, believe me. Yeah. I mean, you, you, when you go through the Internet, you see this happening. Now, everybody comes at it from a different perspective, and some of it's really wild and crazy. But overall, they're all doing the same thing. They're trying to park themselves up in that orbit and look at the species uh, from an extraterrestrial point of well, view. Well, I, I like what you just said there. So, and, and, you know, who knows what's wrong and right in all this. But it's like you say, uh, you know, we could be of great importance to them. Well, I mean, let me ask you something. Is, you know, you're, you're a Brit. Are the French of great importance to you? Are the Japanese of great importance to you? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, they are part of your species. They, 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 they're, they're different. There's a diversity that creates some interest, um, richness, tapestry, of the, and so forth. Um, but, you know, important, good question. Are we important to them? It's probably, I, I think we are relevant to them. I think every sentient species is relevant to another sentient species. Uh, you know, the, the universe is very vast, and the more sentient species, the better, because it's a very vast and potentially very lonely place. So we can understand that. Certainly, our, 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 our gen genetic heritage, our DNA, the DNA of all life on this planet, is a significant component in the scientific reality of the galaxy. Uh, no two biospheres are alike. Uh, everyone has different things to offer, and I, and I suspect that they are the masters of DNA and life sciences. And so we certainly provide some richness there. Um, Beyond that, I hesitate to go. Can I ask you a question, yeah, Stephen? Yeah, can I ask you a question? That uh, people's everyday existence on this planet right now, yeah, I mean, we have to pay bills, we have to get by, you know, uh, most of us have a nine-to-five job, you know, we've got kids to look after, uh, you know, the, uh, where does all this fit in? to, you know, knowing the, an ultimate truth which you, you've looked into, which is that they're, that we're not alone and that there's a sort of a very large, you know, worldwide government cover-up going on here. How does that change people's lives, though, to, to, to know that there is a sentient life out there that's been visiting this planet, you know, since day one? Now that's the great paradox. Um, it, in, in one sense nothing changes. In another sense, everything changes. Um, one of the things that this disclosure event will trigger, because it's so big, it's, uh, it's power, and implications are so huge, unlike anything else that's happened, though there have been some big, how would you say, paradigmatic earthquakes over the last 10,000 years. Um, it, it is going to cause huge numbers of people to reassess what it is to be alive, what it is to be a human, uh, the point of all this. And, you know, often that doesn't go well because the mysteries of life and existence are still not resolved, and it's not clear at all that the ETs have resolved them. So the fact that ETs are here doesn't mean that all of a sudden some crystal pristine philosophy pops in everybody's head. I don't think so. 
It's going to cause, and, and, and it's going to be a huge era of introspection, and it's going to generate just an unbelievable amount of literature, writing, research, reflection, new philosophies, some new religions, and so forth and so forth. Um, which are going to be fun, and I'm, 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 I hope I stick around long enough to see some of that. Um, but again, the ET showing up is not that much different than um, you know uh, some some nice Danish uh, tourists turning up in your New England town. I mean, there's just there's some new people in town. But but what and, about those, uh, what about those people who can't take it? I mean I mean wouldn't it give people an excuse to riot, to not pay their taxes, uh, to go against the system? Or you know is this a good thing? You know is this the end of the system if if the truth came out? Uh, you know that that that's no no. Um, believe me, I mean people would love to have an excuse not pay their taxes. You're going to go to jail if you don't. It doesn't matter the reason. Um, we we can't predict how the post-disclosure world is going to go. Um, it's just being, I mean, I don't, you know, a hundred supercomputers, I don't think, could predict it. But in the collective, um, when you talk about how will all 6.8 billion handle it in the collective, I'm not concerned. I think it will be fine. Um, there will be some people that will go off the deep end, but every day people go off the deep end. Every single day, they don't need extraterrestrials to do that. Uh, I could make a case that the, the the knowledge of an extraterrestrial presence will increase the number of people that go off the deep end by X, and decrease the number of people that would have gone off the deep end by X, and will end up netting out even. Um, but this idea that civilization can only advance when we have absolute certainty that every living person on the planet is going to have a smile on their face and be able to relax and have and be comfortable with it, of course, is ridiculous. Um, we're going forward, period. So, uh, in the one hand, since disclosure is inevitable, just like learning the Earth was round was inevitable, uh, the idea of uh, what people are going to do is somewhat moot. However, one of the most important um, uh, tasks of, the, of the, the, the advocacy movement, the disclosure movement, is in fact education. I mean, we're, we're, this movement is doing as much as any group or any other thing out there to let people know that this is coming, that to think about it, to prepare, to give it some thought, so that they're not shocked. The government's not going to do it. Government. I mean, the government. Some governments are doing some things. They're releasing files. You're getting some hints and allegations. But overall, a, a real, a real proper indoctrination. No, it's not happening. Um, so we're doing that, and I think it is. I think the disclosure movement historically will get a great deal of credit for preparing, helping to prepare the human race for this uh, this change, uh, and and deservedly so. But, but, but surely, surely there will be some people that will be troubled. Surely, governments will lose their power um, to know that they've, uh, you know, had this embargo going on for, uh, you know, uh, sixty years or more. No, no, Kevin, no, 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 no. no. Uh, the, the governments have been around a very long time. They've committed every heinous act you can possibly imagine. They're more powerful than ever. Um. The fact that the, the post-disclosure or the disclosure event for most governments is fundamentally a public relations problem. It's not the government's fault that there's ETs out there. Can't blame them for that. It's not the government's fault that they came here. Can't blame them for that. So it's how they handled, I guess you could say, the process. And they will say we did the best we could. And we will say, no, you didn't. And we'll all argue about it. And a few of the things that happened will, will seem particularly irritating, and there will be some of the public relations problem. Right? I was watching a show just on cable last night about airplane crashes, and they would analyze them crash, and they would go through all of the details, and uh, this and that happened and everything else. And then at the end, and, and there was clearly you know, mistakes made by the airline, by maintenance people, whatever. And at the end, they would say, well, uh, there, there, there was a settlement uh, with all of you know, there was a lot of lawsuits, and they were all settled by the, w without any acknowledgement of wrongdoing. All right, it happens all the time. 
So that's what's going to happen. That the governments of the world will settle with their citizens in one form or fashion, but without any acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And we'll move on. Do you see next year being a, a very sort of telling year for disclosure? Well, what can I say? Um, I, I felt Obama was was uh, okay to be a disclosure president; that they could they could do it. He would he, he could they could work with him. Uh, the pressure was building, and so I would I thought it would happen before now. But then I didn't anticipate the Republicans basically destroying the entire U.S. economy on their way out the door uh, on the mess that's now we're facing. So it's not looking like 2011 right now, but I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, any nation could pop any time, and there are eight nations out there that could give a damn about the U.S. dollar or how much money we owe. So China, for instance, could disclose tomorrow. Uh, but I have the sense that this, the 2012, given every, every, everything going on right now, has a certain appeal, doesn't it? Uh, I can almost see some government committee getting together and going, we know we could probably disclose in September, but why don't we wait till 2012? That'll be so cool, right? And, 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 and maybe you know, every, everybody will be somewhat distracted as they, they cogitate the connection between the disclosure event and the Mayan calendar. Who knows? Um, they have a sense of humor, too. Uh, but what if they don't but, want to disclose? What if they have no plans to disclose whatsoever? Well, that's not the evidence. The evidence seems to indicate that that the consensus that disclosure had to happen is uh, was there no later than 2000. Might even been sooner. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody. I mean, I'm sure there are people inside the military intelligence management committees that do not want disclosure under any circumstances. There's some that would like to wait another 10 years, and there's some that want to do it now. So it's not it's not a monolithic situation. However, I think the consensus is to, to move ahead. But nevertheless, it's you have to you have to um, uh, address the concerns of the other groups, and 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 so they what they haven't been able to reach is the decision to do it. But I think the consensus is there to do it. Um, and that's just the way it is. They'll understand this is the thing that I really try to get across. And I, and, I, and I say it all the time because I'm hoping that somebody in the administration will actually pay attention. We're, this is, we are now in a disclosure race. Right? Uh, we had an arms race, we had a space race, now we have a disclosure race. There are many countries that could end this truth embargo, that have the means to do it. Uh, and so this idea that the United States is now calling the shots, that, that, that ship has sailed. And while there may be some people out there that think the United States controls the world and that nobody does anything without our approval, I don't, you know, they're living in a universe that I don't know anything about. Our ability to, to yell jump and have the rest of the world say how high, that's gone, all right? Uh, and so if China wants to disclose, they'll do it. If Russia wants to disclose, they'll do it. If the United Kingdom wants to disclose, they'll do it. And if I, were, if I was Mr. Cameron right now, I'd be thinking really hard about disclosure because he needs to change the subject real quick. But whatever. So it's not, it's not in U.S. hands anymore. And that's another reason why it's inevitable. When the United States realized it was in a space race, it took us eight years to get to the moon, Right? And that was a pretty tough thing to do. Disclosure will take five minutes. A teenager could do it. And so it's over. The truth embargo is done. The only question is, will it end before we end up getting embroiled in some god-awful human travesty, triggered by some event, and be delayed until whatever, or whether we get it done now, quickly, so that... When we do face the new the cha you know, more challenges, somebody does nuke a city or trigger a virus release to kill 100 million people, or, or some environmental thing happens, it's really bad, that, that when we address these things, we will be in the post-disclosure world. This is the key message of the advocacy that is very difficult to get across. The, you have to, the question is, the, the difference between the pre-disclosure and the post-disclosure world. The, 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 these two worlds are totally different. Worldviews will change. Policy will change. And so 
if, if, if Washington is destroyed by nuclear weapon in the pre-disclosure world, you're going to have one set of events that emerge out of that. But if it happens in the post-disclosure world, you get a different set of events. And I would pose that the difference between those two scenarios is profound and dramatic. The pre-disclosure scenario will go very, very badly because it will be, op it will be responded to based upon 10,000 years of old paradigm thinking. And I assure you, you will not like the outcome. In the post-disclosure world, when all of that old paradigm thinking has been shaken, stirred, cracked, new possibilities will emerge, and, and we will be approaching things from a very different perspective, and there's a good chance that we will respond differently, and the outcomes will not be so bad. This is complicated. I think you can see that, but it is the essence of the advocacy movement. We have to get from the pre-disclosure world to the post-disclosure world before the next foolishness, the next outrageous act of human stupidity takes place so that we can deal with it in a different arena with a different set of thinking. Right, okay. And, and how can people help you, Stephen? Well, Paradigm Research Group has many projects. Uh, first of all, I invite all your listeners to go to worlddisclosureday.org, worlddisclosureday.org, which was launched on January, July the 1st, and endorsed it. We have over, nearly 4,000 endorsements up there now. Uh, we'd like to get 100,000. Um, it's a simple thing. You know, take you a minute. Cost nothing. Uh, it's not a petition. We're asking people to endorse with their first and last name, city and state, city and country, uh, the idea of a, the day devoted to uh, focusing awareness on the fact that the ET presence is being uh, withheld. The knowledge of that is being withheld. Disclosure, WorldDisclosureDay.org. They can go to FactsOnWashington.org and send a letter to the White House Press Corps. Facts and email factsonwashington.org. They can go to the Exopolitics World Network, exopoliticsworld.net. And if they are in a country, they live in a country that does not have a uh, portal website, they may want to volunteer to create that site. Or they can go to the Cities Initiative, which is also there. And anybody that wants to set up an exopolitics group in their city can register with the EWN. We will put up the city and the email for that group so they can help build some membership. Well, meet regularly, talk, show DVDs, whatever. Um, these are just some of the things that they can do. We, we, uh, we, I'll be speaking in Leeds at the Leeds Exopolitics uh, uh, Conference. This is August 5, 6, 7, UK. Uh, the website is easy to get to. It's linked on my site, paradigmresearchgroup.org. Uh, come on up to Leeds, support the conference, hang out. Uh, I'll also be looking to speak at some other venues if people want to hold a host me for a talk in their town. They can get in touch. I'll be in the UK for seven weeks uh, from August 2 to uh, September 13. Um, obviously, we welcome contributions and support to Paradigm Research Group. I'm particularly interested. Um, I really would very much like to meet when I'm in the UK with Robbie Williams or Peter Andre. Uh, both of them have indicated interest in this subject matter. Um, so if anybody has a connection to either Robbie Williams or Peter Andre, I'd, I'd love to, to possibly get a chance to chat with them about what's going on. Uh, I'm also going to make an effort to try to get with, to meet with uh, Richard Branson, but that's virtually impossible. But he's probably one of the few people in the world that I think is ideally suited to uh, help get this issue resolved right away, um, but a very difficult guy to, to get a meeting with. And these are just things off the top of my head. There's plenty of other activism going on, plenty of other groups to support. Um, and, of course, there's plenty of exopolitics in the U.K. Exopolitics in the U.K. is thriving. It's doing very well thanks to the work of, of David Griffin and uh, Anthony Beckett and others. The Leeds Conference is in its third year. The Exopolitics United Kingdom website is doing very well. Uh, the U.K. is an important country here. By the way, the Japan is about to join the Exopolitics World Network, and we're in discussions with a, a webmaster in China. So that's growing. Um, that's, you know, get involved, pay attention. Uh, these are the things that I would recommend people doing. Okay, well, we'll put links uh, from our website to yours. Stephen Bassett, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Kevin. To find out more information on Stephen Bassett, just go to paradigmresearchgroup.org 
or visit my site, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Stephen Bassett under Past Guests. Now, don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the TV version of The More Show on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403 every Friday at 6 p.m. So until next time, be safe.